Poland, American forces arrive en masse. Has Donald Trump partied like a Russian? Could we see more German boots on the ground in Europe? Is Cyprus on the brink of a one-nation future? And war through the eyes of the correspondent. The Times man in the blue body armour tells all. Thousands of American troops have started to arrive in Poland to be deployed on NATO's eastern frontier. More than 80 tanks and hundreds of armoured vehicles are involved in the biggest operation by US forces in Europe since the end of the Cold War. It's part of attempts by President Obama to reassure NATO allies concerned about perceived Russian aggression. Well, I'm joined by former Defence and Pentagon correspondent for The Times, Michael Evans, as well as BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. A big show of strength from NATO in response to so-called Russian aggression. Is it necessary, Michael Evans? Well, the decision was actually made some time ago, so it shouldn't be a surprise to Moscow when they start turning up. But 87 tanks, 500 armoured personnel carriers, and, you know, up to 3,000 troops who will eventually arrive. Yeah, it's a big deal, uh, seen from Moscow's end of it. Uh, I'm sure they don't like it. They've already said they don't like it. But one has to remember what's been going on uh, for the last couple of years and remember that there are currently 225,000 Russian troops in Kaliningrad, Kaliningrad, the so-called exclave, which uh, sits uh, rather strategically between Poland and Lithuania. Mm, Michael, this is supposed to be a permanent deployment, but President-elect Trump has indicated he may want to have a different kind of relationship with Russia. Uh, Just how permanent do you think it really will be in practice? In a sense, it's not really permanent because to be permanently based means you've got to build, uh, you know, a proper base and uh, go back to the Cold War days. This, uh, under a sort of deal with uh, with the Russians uh, some time ago, there was supposed to be no permanent basing of large numbers of troops in Eastern Europe. So this would be a, a sort of breach, if you like, if they were to be permanently based. So the idea in the Pentagon's language, is that they will be uh, rotated so that there will be 3,000 troops, but they won't be sitting there with their families. They will come in and then they'll be rotated uh, a few months later. Okay, maybe not permanent, but how ongoing then do you think the rotation will be under Donald Trump? I think there's no question that all the military guys, particularly those who are in charge of uh, the European end of things for the Pentagon, will be advising uh, Donald Trump when he takes over as president that we need to have a robust presence in uh, Europe, whatever his feelings about Putin. Uh, There are enough suspicions and concerns about uh, the Kremlin uh, for NATO, US-led NATO, uh, to make its presence felt, I think, in Europe. And I, I suspect that Donald Trump will we'll, we'll listen, but whether he uh, brings them all back, I think is unlikely. Christopher Lee, where does Britain fit in with all of this? It's not part of this deployment. That's the first thing I remember. Remember this thing, you know, as, as Mike says, uh, under an agreement which is not really kept to, um, the allies, the former allies, the NATO and NATO forces are not have, allowed to have permanent headquarters in on, on previous territory, the so-called near abroad of, uh, of the Russians. You've got to remember a few things, though. This is not just about America and America's perception of what Putin might do or what his ambitions are, how he ties those ambitions with his capabilities. It's also about, for example, places like Poland. 
if you happen to be a pole, you're very pleased that this sort of thing is happening. It is, I mean, a, a, a brigade, even an armoured brigade, is not going to hold up, uh, hold off the whole 16 shock army from Magdeburg mm-hmm. from, on, on the Russians' part. That sort of, that sort of imagination, it's not going to do that. Where does Britain fall in with this? Britain falls in with this by deploying small amounts, you know, but battalion minus a company sort of amounts uh, to NATO exercises, to uh, semi. Uh, so many permanent uh, uh, deployments where you might be looking at one particular thing, for example, the area of the Baltic and reinforcing exercises which otherwise they might not go to. It's all part of this feeling over the past couple of years that NATO forces, alliance forces, wherever they come from, ought to be doing something to one uh, sort of stand up to Putin, although you're not going to stop his, you're not going to uh, spoil his ambitions, but also to reinforce the ideas that within NATO, within European part of NATO, there is a determination that come a crisis that NATO might do something. Now, the truth is that come a crisis, 28 nations, 27, 28 nations ain't going to do something in a hurry. It'll probably take them five weeks to actually just to get a, a meeting together. But it it's, it's that, has that distinction. So when, when, when Mr. Trump comes into office... He might turn around and he'll say to his generals, uh, including Mad Dog, his, his defence secretary, they might say, now listen, uh, should we be doing this? Should we be spending the money on these people? Aren't they doing enough for themselves? And here we have the wider debate that I think that Mr Trump is At going to have to face. At which point you're thinking that he might reconsider this uh, rotation there? I don't think he, he reconsiders the rotation. What he might do is this. He might turn around, or his defence secretary might turn around and say, listen, do we still need it? Have we changed the climate? How do we how do uh, do we not expect, for example, the Germans to mm. put in more, the French to put in more, the British to put in more? Shouldn't they be putting in in, in a mechanised brigade or an armoured brigade? Mm. I mean, the truth is, most of us, in the uh, European members of uh, of NATO, don't actually have extra troops to put anywhere. Only the Americans have. And if you go back right to 1949, some of the fundamentals of of, of NATO's uh, of NATO's building was the fact that this is actually still America's front line. Mm. Uh, now let's talk about um, uh, Donald Trump and yesterday's headlines. Uh, Michael Evans, what is really going on here? This this dossier that's supposed to have been compiled, well, has been compiled with allegations of his, his relationship with Russia. Whose side is Donald Trump really on? <laughs> that's a, an incredibly difficult question to answer. Uh, if you listen to Donald Trump by his tweeting, Uh, It's very difficult to gauge exactly what it's up to. I've read this report now a couple of times, and it it actually reads rather like uh, uh, a sort of tabloid uh, journalist report rather Mm. than an intelligence officer's report. Not the Times, then, would you say? Not the Times, Michael? Well, I think, no, I actually, I I don't think that's right. I think it's full of uh, wonderful stuff, and it's got lots of sourcing, so that's good. But, of course, we don't know what the sourcing is. I'm a little bit concerned that the sourcing indicates sort of senior sources in the Kremlin or in the Ministry of Defence or whatever. And, of course, we have no idea who they are, whether they're the front-door commissioner or whether they're someone like the deputy defence minister. We just don't know. So I don't know. But it's, it's fairly easy for someone like Trump, I think, to dismiss this whole thing because uh, if there is a real secret which the American intelligence services have, which they can't divulge to the public, uh, then uh, it uh, rather spoils the show, because although they're convinced that Putin uh, was behind the hacking, for instance, in the election campaign and is uh, up to no good, uh, the the real evidence they may have probably will never be made public. Christopher Lee, what's your take on all of this? I wonder if it's written by reporters or a gentleman from The Times. I mean, that, that's a puzzle. Stop it. Let me see. What do we know? Uh, did 
Mr. Trump have any arrangements with Moscow Protestant, uh, prostitutes? He says no. There's no evidence that we've seen that he did. So that's that bit. Was there some financial arrangement with the Trump organization that might have come through Moscow? Do we know? He says no. That's it. Now, what's therefore interesting is this, is that at his press conference yesterday, which is generally described as, a, as, as, as absolutely bizarre, uh, Mr. Trump won. Because everybody was saying that what's behind all this, and Trump turned around and said, this is exactly why I was elected. Mm. And that means he's won. Now, the, the guys with the big My money in, in, in uh, Washington say he's not going to survive a year. Yep. But the truth is they're the same guys who said he wouldn't get in in the first place. Michael Evans, just, just as a journalist speaking now, um, do you think that we're entering into a, a new kind of era that you can actually just dismiss things you don't like and say they're untruths? As, I mean, we, we, we heard the criticism, for example, of the Brexit campaign pre, uh, prior to the vote and the kind of things that are being put out about. Do you think we're entering into a new era that whoever shouts the loudest wins? To a certain extent. I mean, to be honest, we've had this sort of truths and untruths for as long as I can remember. Uh, if there isn't absolute proof of something, you can dismiss it. There's been lots of cases of that. But we're definitely in a new era because the man with the loudest rhetoric uh, is Donald Trump. And he was superlative at his press conference yesterday in just dismissing everything as, mm. a, as a load of rubbish. Uh, and I think he's sort of, if you like, cowering the American journalists but in particular uh, to try and get them to behave themselves and to stick to facts mm. as put out by Mr Trump and not put out by any anybody else. It's a, a fairly unhealthy position to be in just a few days, I think, before he takes over at, number, uh, at uh, the White House. Mm, Michael, stay with us. Uh, we'll talk to you later in the programme. Um, thanks for now, though. Well, it's not just the Americans making big deployments in Europe this year. In the spring, German troops will lead a high-profile NATO force in Lithuania in response to that Russian aggression, this time in the Baltic region. Until 1990, German forces were banned from serving abroad in anything other than humanitarian roles. So, is this the start of Germany playing a bigger part in European defence. Well, I'm joined now by Elizabeth Braw, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Good to speak to you today, Elizabeth. A US president-elect Donald Trump has warned NATO countries that they need to start spending more on defence. Is this going to be the year that Germany steps up? Well, I think uh, well, we can definitely hope so. And uh, it looks like it will be the case. You mentioned the uh, deployment now to Lithuania of uh, 1,000 NATO soldiers where Germany will send 450 uh, Bundeswehr troops and also lead um, the, the rotational force. So that's a major step for the Bundeswehr, so the German armed forces. Um, they haven't really taken a leading role uh, in much of anything in the past and for very obvious reasons, but that seems to be changing. Mm -hmm. You say it's changing. What kind of state are those German forces, the Bundeswehr, in at the moment? Uh, well, that's a, a sorry chapter. So uh, in 1990, which, you know, was the year when East and West Germany were reunited, uh, West Germany spent 2.8% uh, of its GDP on defense, and that's well above the NATO benchmark of 2%. But uh, three years later, it had um, decreased to 1.9%, and now for the past five years, it has uh, been around 1.2 or 1.3% of GDP, which is much less than a NATO state is supposed to spend. And um, 
even the money that it does allocate to defense, uh, in some years doesn't get spent. So the, the equipment uh, uh, is in sometimes a very sorry state. Mm, yeah, you've written about that, haven't you, and about the kind of almost comical kind of uh, things that have been used to substitute the lack of equipment. That's right. Yes, there was a, a recent exercise uh, uh, involving a NATO rapid reaction force, so supposedly NATO's uh, fastest response force and its its best uh, weapon against whoever the intruder or um, uh, adversary might be. And uh, the Bundeswehr soldiers participating found themselves um, lacking uh, an ammunition rammer and uh, creatively put a broomstick that they painted black uh, there instead. But of course, it, it gives a rather comical impression. Mm. What, what are you getting about the way the rest of Europe is feeling about Germany potentially taking a more active role? Well, I think that's the big change because... Uh, 60 years ago, there was absolutely no way anybody would have wanted Germany to take a leading role. And as you know, Lord Ismay famously said, uh, that NATO's first Secretary General famously said that NATO's function was to keep the Americans in, the Russians out and the Germans down. Um, but things have changed very substantially. Uh, and, and during the Cold War, Germany essentially played the role of the permanent sidekick uh, to, to the um, stronger military forces, the UK, uh, the US and France. Uh, but things have changed and, and now uh, that memory of, of a strong German military uh, is fading and, and in fact the, the people's memory is more of a ridiculous German mm. military so there is not that fear anymore. And in fact, considering the sort of resources Germany has, there is uh, a desire for, for Germany to do more. Elizabeth, our defence analyst Christopher Lee has been listening to this. That uh, quote from Puggies May was apocryphal anyway and he also went on to say um, that uh, Germany will one day, and he, he talked then of West Germany will one day become uh, one of our strongest allies. But since 1950s, 1954 when uh, Germany's insertion in, in into the alliance. Um, Germany has had the restriction for many years that they weren't allowed to go out of area, but they have done. They've been deployed, for example, uh, in some senses in, in Afghanistan. I would not knock Germany on the basis that they're just above 1% on the defence spending. Things are not only changing, B, it's, it, it, their command systems are excellent and very good and improving. Also, is what you want them for. And the third point is it's not how much you spend, it's what you spend it on. And I think Germany is now starting, there are signs it's starting to get that, uh, to get that into its act. And I'm not at all despondent about the state of uh, Germany's defence spending. No. no, and in fact, uh, I, I think the positive news is that all, all of this is, is changing and, and, uh, um, and changing for the better. Uh, for example, the announcement that Germany will spend 60% more on defence within the next five years mm -hmm. and also increase the number of troops by 10,000 up from 177,000. So uh, uh, German decision makers are clearly uh, heading in this direction that uh, Christopher pointed out. All right. Elizabeth Braw, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Still to come, talks to reunify Cyprus. What part does Britain play? And Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq and Afghanistan, all through the eyes of the defence correspondent at The Times. Michael Evans tells us what it was really like.
Now, for the first time, the government's top lawyer has outlined the legal factors that would be considered before military action was taken against terror targets overseas. In a landmark speech, the Attorney General, Jeremy Wright QC, said the UK was legally justified to use drone strikes to stop imminent terrorist attacks, but only as a last resort. Well, let's talk to Dr Oral Sari, who lectures in the law of armed conflict at the University of Exeter. Good to speak to you today, Dr Sari. Does this make things clearer? for decision makers good afternoon yes it does make uh, things somewhat clearer i mean if we just backtrack a little bit if you look at the un charter it enshrines the rights of individual and collective self-defense if an armed attack has occurred and that language suggests that an armed attack has to occur first before action can be taken by a state in self-defense against the threat that the armed attack poses now of course the issue is does a state actually have to wait until it is being attacked if you think about um terrorist threats, they don't necessarily uh, materialize immediately. It's not immediately clear where they come from. Does a state actually have to wait and let itself be attacked before it can respond uh, forcefully? And the answer by some states and also by many commentators is that actually there's a right of anticipatory self-defense, which means that a state does not have to wait for the attack to actually materialize, but can, in anticipation of that attack, launch uh, use of force measures first. Now, that is exactly what the Attorney General confirmed. In fact, he wasn't the first one uh, on the side of the government to confirm that the UK believes it has a right to self-defence. The uh, previous Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith, confirmed that point back in 2004. So really the only new thing which happened yesterday in the speech given by the Attorney General, Jeremy Wright, was that he set out some of the criteria for imminence in greater detail and did so publicly for the very first time. But even so, some of these criteria have been uh, debated and in the public domain for many years. What he really did yesterday was to confirm that these are the specific criteria the government is using. Do you think there's going to be much of a result of this speech or or is it just basically bringing the debate out there and uh, trying to clarify a situation? It's definitely something uh, which I personally and I think a lot of uh, other commentators uh, and also uh, allies of the United Kingdom very much welcome. It does create greater clarity. As I say, the the criteria, um, for example, um, they include points and and factors like the nature of the threat, the immediacy of the threat, the probability of an attack. Is there anything else that the United Kingdom could do to avert the threat? So these criteria are not, not new. They're entirely reasonable. And what the uh, what the government did was basically spell them out in greater detail and do so publicly. So that's really the, the major impact uh, of that particular speech. And of course, there are still many, many controversies around uh, the use of force. So the government has not really, uh, it has clarified this position, but it has not resolved some of these controversies, which includes the question whether actually self-defense is lawful at all. Mm. There was um, a report out this week that said that the use of unmanned aerial vehicles is going to increase globally. Is that partly behind perhaps why he wants to put this out in the public area and talk about it now? Oh, well, definitely. I mean, the uh, the question has, has uh, been sort of part of the public debate in, in, in the UK, uh, partly because of, um, of uh, some of the actual operations conducted by the UK. If you think back to, uh, to August and September 2015, we had the strike in Syria against Riyadh Khan. Uh, that was actually 
uh, one of the cases where the UK justified the use of force on the basis of anticipatory self-defense. So the reason why the Attorney General came out and, and made his speech and offered that clarification is precisely because these are questions which, which very much exercise uh, the public mind in the UK, but of course also more, uh, more generally abroad too. Do you think it's inevitable that one day we are going to see people prosecuted for an attack which is deemed illegal in this nature? Well, here we have to be careful because um, we have to distinguish, of course, between the different legal regimes which apply. So any drone attack, any other attack by, by an unmanned, unmanned aerial vehicle, or even if it's if it's not an aerial attack, but, uh, but another form of, of use of military force, engages a number of different legal regimes. The use of force is one of them. That's, uh, that's the legal regime that the Attorney General was talking about. But the law of armed conflict is a completely separate one. So insofar as we talk about the use of force, in other words, the right of the state to use military force in the first place, that is governed under international criminal law. Uh, There's one particular international crime which relates to this, which is the crime of aggression. The crime of aggression um, is rather uh, esoteric, I I might say, in the sense that there are very little precedents for that crime actually being being used, for people being prosecuted Mm. under that crime. Um, so I would hesitate and I'd be very surprised if we actually see prosecutions for an act of aggression because um, a state or, or state agents engaged in anticipatory self-defense. It's not impossible, right. but it's not necessarily something that I anticipate will happen anytime soon. All right, Dr. Sari, good to speak to you. That's Dr. Sari from the University of Exeter. Now, talks are underway in Geneva aimed at reunifying the island of Cyprus. The island has been divided for more than 40 years since Turkish forces invaded the north after a coup backed by Greece. The 1974 invasion uprooted 165,000 Greek Cypriots from the north, while 40,000 Turkish Cypriots were displaced from their homes in the south. Well, let's talk to our reporter, Simon Newton, who's in our studio in Akrotiri. Um, Simon, good to speak to you today. There seems to be a feeling that we're on the brink, perhaps, of a historic agreement. Is that the feeling you get in Cyprus? Uh, I think perhaps is the right word. I think there's certainly here a resignation that this is the last uh, realistic chance. I think the UN Special Representative um, Espen Ida told reporters yesterday that this was the the end game, and I think that's really how people are feeling here. It, It is the first time that they've gone and discuss certain big issues. The first time, for instance, that they've exchanged maps between the two sides. And today we saw the, the guarantor powers, uh, the UK, Turkey and Greece, meeting for the first time to discuss um, the basis of the of the 1960 Treaty of Establishment. Um, so I say the, the UN themselves are talking up the chances of a, of a deal being struck, this move towards what they describe as this bizonal, bicommunal federation, which essentially would be an EU state, a single EU state composed of two separate self-ruling communities but there are big issues still to be agreed on the big ones are security uh, the territorial issues and uh, and governance that the territorial swap between the two sides of, of land how a rotating presidency for instance would work um, could the uh, greek cypriots accept a turkish president for instance for a period of time and also the issues of the of the 40,000 turkish troops that remain uh, on the uh, northern side of the island. So so people here are helpful, are hopeful, should I say, but there is still a great deal of scepticism. Mm. And the, the former colonial power, Britain, um, is involved, of course. The Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, flew to Geneva today. Could it mean big changes for British forces in Cyprus is there, if there is a reunification? 
Well, it could certainly mean a, a change in, in the geography, that the territory occupied by the sovereign base areas. Uh, they currently compose around 99 square miles of Cyprus. Uh, back in 2004, if you remember when the Annam plan was uh, put to the people of Cyprus, it was rejected uh, quite round, roundly by the Greek Cypriots. The Br Britain offered to uh, relinquish about 46 square miles. Uh, that's, that's areas around Decalia and uh, north of Akrotiri. Um, these are areas that are no longer of military use, uh, largely. Um, so it won't affect the bases or the garrisons themselves, which would remain in place, RF Akrotiri, for instance, or the Decalia garrison. Um, but uh, certainly half of the British territory, the UK territory in Cyprus, would go. Uh, there's an old saying when it comes to Cyprus that nothing is solved until everything's solved, and you have to remember that all of this has to be put before a referendum of the people here, even if a deal is struck in Geneva, and that could possibly happen in uh, 2018 if it does indeed go ahead. Christopher? The most important thing about the talks that are taking place in Geneva is that the Turks have decided that they will send their Prime Minister, which he wasn't suspected, of going there to the talks. In other words, Turkey's got something to say on this, and this is a crucial part of it. The other thing to remember is that whatever happens, Cyprus itself militarily remains a theatre military activity. It's, it's, its place in the part of Middle East warfare, and they're trying to resolve that Middle East warfare, uh, is paramount. Everything goes through there. The greatest listening post is in Cyprus. And so these are the bigger military uh, positions that have to be decided. But both Turkey and Greece are members of NATO. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Simon Newton of Cyprus, thank you. The veteran war reporter Claire Hollingworth died this week, aged 105. Christopher Lee, you met her, you knew her. Tell us about her. Yeah, I've known her for quite, I've known quite a long time. Uh, uh, Claire, who was, who was amazing beauty in the 1930s, astonishing beauty, and, and ambassadors and people who shouldn't have spoken to her did speak to her and gave her all sorts of help. And they'd say, OK, old girl, off you go, you can borrow my car to go to the war. But the thing about uh, Claire was that she was, I think, one of the last of, of the old-style reporters even when she sort of stopped reporting in that sense, which is, what, 30 or 40 years ago. And the size of her reputation is that in the past two days since her death, newspapers have carried obituaries, not just in, in the United Kingdom, like the Telegraph, for whom she worked, but New York Times, big obituary, the, the Wall Street Journal this morning, big obituary, the, mm. the Sydney Morning Herald, big obituary. She was one of the last figures. Somebody, one day, will make the most amazing film Mm. Let's bring back Michael Evans, a former war correspondent with The Times. Uh, Michael, it was said by a colleague of hers that she loved war. Um, I've got a copy of your new book in front of me here, and it says in the front that Michael Evans' closest secret is out. To paraphrase from Dr Johnson, I believe he thinks a little meanly of himself for never having been a soldier. Um, that was Colonel Bodshu who said that about you. Um, did you love war? Do you love war? Well, I like that quote from Bob Stewart. <laughs> Very nice. Um, no, I didn't love war. I mean, I, I, I also knew Claire, but not well. Um, I, what I did find when I covered wars was that I uh, enjoyed the exhilaration, the excitement, the adrenaline-filling moments, and the wonderful opportunity to uh, write fantastic stories which uh, would make... Uh, uh, a big splash in the in the paper the following day. So I enjoyed thoroughly being a journalist in war zones, but it didn't make me actually love the sort of culture of war, if you like, because uh, obviously war is uh, highly unpleasant and you come across 
some quite uh, traumatic uh, scenes which uh, remain with you for the rest of your life. Mm, and you've written about all of this in your memoirs. You speak very highly of the many times you spent with British forces in Bosnia, Kosovo, Sierra Leone, Iraq, Afghanistan. What have you learnt about uh, the British forces from these experiences? I think um, um, they are, you know, I know people say they are among the best. They are among the best, but they, they have what is amazing, which is a fantastic camaraderie. Now, I know that is probably the other countries will say they have the same. But the Brits, I think, uh, are an amazing bunch of soldiers when they are overseas. Uh, they have this quite extraordinary ability, not just to fight wars, not just to keep the peace, but also to really get to know the local people. They don't think it's a good idea to come charging in in battle dress and, uh, and helmets and uh, tanks uh, and ignore the local people. Everything is the local people. Local people, for example, provide fantastic intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think the Brits, probably more than any other nation, have learnt that. Uh, that secret, which is you don't come barging in, you use and make friends with the local communities to help you either win the war or at least to keep the peace. Mm. And what's your most abiding memory of your time spent with British troops in a war zone? I have a lot. Um, I, I mean, I call my book first with the news, which is, sounds a little bit presumptuous, but uh, but there why was not? A, an, a, well, why not exactly? <laughs> um, some of my fellow defence correspondents might say, "Oi, you went first always," but never never mind. Uh, I think one of my most abiding. I think memories I've got one was, sitting next to me, actually, Michael. <laughs> excellent. Yes, of course. Um, I in June uh, nineteen ninety nine, I was standing in a cornfield in not far from. Skopje in the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. We were waiting uh, to join the NATO troops going into Kosovo to, mm. to drive out the Serbs. Uh, but this was the day before it all happened. You've got and five seconds to wind it up, Mike. I don't know if you can. Suddenly, we, I was embedded with the first paras and we were told we're going to go into Pristina because the Russians have arrived and it could be World War Three. That was highly exciting. And you can read about it in that book. Thank you for joining us today. That's all we have time for this week. Join us again this time next week. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.